be reading only verses 2 to 6. Um, I think I miscommunicated the, uh, uh, script, the uh, sermon title. In the bulletins, you, you see the gospel and time management or something like that. Uh, it's similar to that, but it's, uh, it's called Redeeming the Time. Um, hear the word of the Lord. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, some missionaries, when they come on home service and they work on their sermons for home service, uh, they prepare sermons that are full of anecdotes from their field of service, stories about their ministry, and I understand that impulse and I sympathize with it. We missionaries only have once every three years to come and visit you, and we need to make every moment count so that you remember us, so that you remember what we're doing in our different fields of service. But uh, as a missionary with Resonate, I believe that my call while I'm here is to lead and encourage the Christian Reformed Church toward witness here at home, toward mission around the world. And so the sermons I've prepared for this home service revolve around the theme of personal witness. Some of the sermons revolve around a witness by our actions and lifestyle, and uh, this sermon is going to focus on our witness through our words. Now this passage of Colossians 4 challenges us to do two activities that we historically as Christian Reformed people have not been known for, uh, that we're not so good at doing. Devoted prayer for kingdom expansion and evangelistic conversations. We believe in these activities, and so in a sense I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but we find it harder to actually go and do those things on a regular basis. Maybe your church is an exception, but historically other denominations have been a little better at those two activities than we have. And so this sermon might require a little bit of heavy lifting on our part. Beyond just listening and nodding and saying thank you pastor after the service, I hope that you'll be listening during the sermon, listening to the Lord, and being on the lookout for concrete and practical ways in which you might live out this passage in the following week. We're going to go verse by verse, so if you'd like to have your Bibles open, uh, that, would, that would be helpful. But we're going to just jump right in with verse 2. Paul starts out saying, devote yourselves to prayer. Other translations have this as, never stop praying. Be persistent in prayer. Persevere in prayer. Would that be an accurate description of your church's prayer life? Being persistent in prayer, persevering in prayer? Would it be an accurate description of your own? The church in the book of Acts huddled together in the context of persecution. They huddled together in upper rooms to pray for each other and to pray for the word to go forth and for the church to grow. And they cried out to God in the persecution that they felt. They persevered 
in prayer. But in my experience, we Christian Reform types tend to dabble at prayer. We run the risk of treating prayer like a formality, something we just do before uh, meals and uh, before and after church meetings. How often do we say the words, I'll be praying for you, and then if we pray at all, we pray just once for that person's need. We even have a nickname for the pastoral prayer, the intercessory prayer during our church services. We call it the long prayer. <laughs> like we should get a medal for enduring such a long prayer. I wonder what the Christians in the first century would think of our long prayers in our church services. We Christian Reform types tend to be more about action than about prayer. We like to roll up our shirt sleeves and jump right in. We like to donate. We like to uh, work hard. And the voice in our head gets a little impatient with prayer. And, we th and it thinks, how can we sit around praying? We need to be doing something. That's a very telling phrase, isn't it? There's a certain kind of arrogance in not valuing perseverance in prayer. It's like saying, thank you God, I'll handle this one on my own. Don't need your help. I'm going to take care of this. I got this. I'm going to get her done. You know, it's Reformation time. We all say that salvation is by grace and not by works. But often our actions show that what we really value is our efforts rather than praying for God's grace and power to act through us and around us and often in spite of us. And sometimes, for me this is the worst part, sometimes we even leave God out of the equation entirely when we're talking about prayer. We personify prayer the abstract as an abstract idea and we personify it and say things like, prayer changes things. That really... That phrase really makes me uncomfortable. Prayer changes things. Well, prayer doesn't change anything. God changes things. And by prayer, we go to God and He has the power and He has the glory and He will change things. We need to be in touch with God through prayer if we want to see transformation in our lives and our world. But why would we want to leave God out of the equation and focus rather on the act of praying? Well, we need to move on. Paul continues about prayer in verse 2 with the words, being watchful. Being watchful. In the Gospels, Jesus combines these ideas. He says, watch and pray. So many times, watch and pray. We need to pray with our eyes open. Not literally, of course. We can close our eyes when we pray. But we need to be open to the ways that God is moving in our midst. Watching for the way that He answers prayers. And watching for the opportunities for us to obey God and be the answer to our own prayers. Because oftentimes that what's, that's what happens, isn't it? We pray, if we pray, we take the time and say, God, convert my neighbors. And God says, Amen, coming right up. But you know what? I'm going to do that through you. I'm going to send people your way. And you're going to tell them what a great God I am. And you're, you're going to introduce them to me. Paul continues. He says that we should pray 
with thanksgiving. Prayer is not an odious task. Prayer is not a burden. It's a joyful activity. Our Presbyterian partners in Mexico, uh, they subscribe to the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Catechism, and those documents say that the purpose of our lives is not only to glorify God, but to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy God. What a thing. Could it be that our refusal to persevere in prayer might reveal that perhaps we don't enjoy as much as we should spending time with God? To what extent do we just text Him now and then like the young people are texting messages back and forth to each other? How much are we just sending Him a text message now and then and get back to our regular activities that we really enjoy? How could we get so far off course? How could we stray so far from the goal? We need to move God back to the center of our relationships and our social network again. We may need to rediscover the delight, the sheer delight of communing with God, of spending time with Him, of depending on His grace and relishing in that grace. Persevere in prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now in verses 3 to 4, Paul asks for prayer. And in this part, uh, when I read the scripture text, it's almost like I'm talking to you as me, Dave Gifford. Hey, make sure to pray for me. In this verse, Paul does what Blanc and I are going to be doing during the presentation after the service. We're going to be asking you to pray for us. And Paul asks for prayer for him. And Paul is in prison when he writes these words. And it's interesting to note that he doesn't ask for the doors of his prison cell to be opened so that he can go free. He asks for spiritual prison doors to be opened so that the gospel can be free to bear fruit. Prayer for missions. Prayer for open hearts. Prayer for opportunities. Strategic prayers. Paul isn't so concerned that he get out of jail but he wants, even in jail, to be, have, have the opportunity to share with others and help them come to know God. There's nothing wrong with praying for ourselves, praying for our needs, our families, our forgiveness of sins. But in the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting to note that the petitions that are for us and our needs come after God's own prayer, uh, prayer requests. God wants to see the humankind finally praise His name, recognize His kingly authority, and do His will. And so we offer our petitions for our needs in the larger context of God's own prayer requests and petitions for world transformation, for mission. Now in verses 5 and 6, the focus shifts from prayer to action. And Paul writes, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The church in Colossa was under attack. 
It was a persecuted church. The Jewish people hated the church. The Roman pagans hated the Christians. The heretics and the false teachers hated the Christians. Everybody hated the Christians. And so Paul says, be wise. That is, be cautious. Be careful what you say and don't say. Be careful what you do and don't do in the presence of those who don't share your faith. But he's not saying, oh, be careful and don't say anything to anybody to let anybody know you're a Christian. He doesn't say that because right away he starts talking about conversations being full of uh, grace and salt. It's not that he's saying, don't tell anybody you're a Christian because we're under attack. It's we're being persecuted and so make the most of every opportunity to be able to share with people about Jesus. Don't waste the opportunities that God gives us to tell people about Jesus. Make the most of every opportunity. The uh, Greek phrase in this verse is literally redeem the time. Redeem the time. And the image is of a shopper who goes to the market and sees really great offers and sales and scoops up everything he or she can, redeeming, buying everything in the time that he or she has before the seller wakes up and realizes what's going on and hikes the prices up. Redeem the time. Act now before it's too late. Because when it comes to witnessing opportunities, the person that you might see today who's open to the good news of Jesus might not be so open tomorrow. Tomorrow, attitudes could change. Death could intervene. Jesus could return again. In any of those scenarios, it might be too late to give that person the message that God entrusted to us to give to them. We, the people of God, redeem the time because the time is short. And because if we don't redeem the time, we won't see people redeemed either. Because God works through us. And we need to continue. Paul says our conversations should be seasoned with grace and salt. Salt is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Salt makes foods that are already delicious and wonderful even more delicious and wonderful. I never thought in my life, I never thought that there was anything wrong with caramel until they invented salted caramel. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they had to invent salted caramel after I got diabetes. Oh. So, such torture. You know, I go to the movie theater and I smell that popcorn drenched with butter and salt, this wonderful heavenly fragrance, and I run to the counter and I say, yeah, I want some popcorn. And the kid says, that'll be $6. And I'm like, what? How much? You know, these are, you know, these are just seeds, right? These are just seeds that are puffed with air, right? How can it be that much? But I smell that salted butter and popcorn and and I can't resist. I say, I don't care what you're charging, I'll take it, you know, because Wonder Woman would not be the same without a bucket of popcorn. Now here's the thing. Our conversations with people outside our faith need to be like that popcorn. 
We need to be so saturated with the salty, delicious grace of God that we can't help spreading that delicious aroma with us wherever we go. So that wherever we go, people will see Jesus in us. They'll get a whiff of the heavenly fragrance that Jesus puts into us. What seasons everything we say and do and are with that salty goodness. And that aroma, that halo of flavor that we have will be so irresistible that people will be willing to give up everything to have what we have. That's what evangelistic conversation needs to be like. So why in the world are evangelistic conversations, personal testimony, uh, witnessing, why is that so difficult for us? Well, there are a few reasons. One is that perhaps we, like, we think we have to memorize these long gospel presentations, 20 minutes long, like I had to memorize in college, and then spring them on unsuspecting victim, victims who have to listen to us for 15, 20 minutes. But it's usually much more effective just to share something brief and simple. A short testimony of something that God has done in our lives recently. Or a verse that's impacted us in some way recently. Or a Christian idea, something we read in a Christian book or heard in a message, heard in a sermon. And share those. And simply just praying with people as well. Taking time to pray with them for their needs. And God uses these short bursts, these short words, like seeds. And eventually people start asking questions or sharing the objections that they have, the, the obstacles that keep them from belief. And that gives us an opportunity to share more at length and help them come to the truth. And that's a much more natural method than memorizing long speech. Memory is great. I think we need memory and memorization and preparation, definitely. But think of evangelism more like planting a seed and waiting for the Spirit to produce and provide the harvest. What matters the most is listening to each person, understanding their specific situation and needs, and then showing love to them by connecting their problems and needs with some aspect of the gospel that could be of help to them. It's like Paul says in our passage, so that you may know how to answer everyone, because each one is a little bit different. Now, another reason for our hesitation to do evangelism is that maybe we just don't know what to say when the time comes to, to share and explain the gospel. Well, in Mexico, I came up with a handy little outline that in Spanish works out to eight words and just a little bit longer in the English translation. So here it is. Jesus was raised Lord. Jesus wants to raise you too. Let me repeat that. Jesus was raised Lord. Jesus wants to raise you too. Now the first part, Jesus was raised Lord, the idea is this. Jesus has been resurrected, raised from the dead, and placed in a position of authority over all of creation. And that means that each of us needs to recognize his authority over us and recognize that we've rebelled against his authority 
and recognize that we need to approach Him for mercy and forgiveness. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the other half, Jesus wants to raise you too. Well, those who do come to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness discover the delightful truth that He Himself suffered the death penalty that hung over us for rebelling against His authority. And now He wants to lift us up. He wants to raise us up from the filth, from the shame of our pride and sin. He wants to stand us up in His presence, forgiven, renewed, equipped for a new life, equipped for a mission to take that good news to others who need it as well. So it's very simple. Jesus was raised Lord. Jesus wants to raise you too. doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Now another obstacle to witness, if you're an introvert like I am, you might find it hard to open up with others. I have this theory that God designed Christian ministry in such a way that it stretches all of us. It stretches introverts. It, stre- it stretches out extroverts as well. It gets us all out of our comfort zones. Because the extroverts, the outgoing people, they read verses 5 and 6 of our passage and they're like, conversations, talking to people, hey great, where do I sign up? But then they have more trouble with the quiet time and the solitude and the reading the Bible, reading Christian books, doing the prep work. On the other hand, introverts like me think that curling up with a commentary is a slice of heaven on earth. But hey, wait a minute, God. You mean we also have to go out and interact with real people too and the messiness of their lives and the needs that they have and the objections they have? So we all have to stretch a bit no matter what kind of orientation we have regarding introversion and extroversion. Because in the end, the introverts love for reading and the quiet time and the Bible and so forth. What are those things for if not to prepare us for going out and communicating with others? And what good is the extrovert's out, uh, outgoingness, if that's the word, talking with others if the extrovert doesn't have a good grasp of the good news that, that he or she needs to offer to others? In his first letter, John sums up evangelistic conversation nicely. He says, We have fellowship with God the Father and Jesus. And in order for our joy to be complete, we proclaim the message to you so you can share in that fellowship too. In the end, that's really what it's about, isn't it? Discovering the delight of fellowship with God, of communing with Him, the prayer that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, and then telling others because we want them to have those same blessings like we have them. In conclusion, the process is pretty clear. Everything begins with prayer because this isn't something of our own effort. It doesn't come from ourselves. We need the grace and power of God. And so everything begins by praying to God. And the prayer that we pray is that God will open the doors for His Word and open our mouths at the right time. But while we're praying, we also watch. We pray with our eyes open, so to speak, looking for that right 
moment, looking for the people that we might be able to share with, that we might bless by sharing the good news with them. And then when God opens the door, we act quickly, redeeming the time, scooping up the opportunities as God opens them up before us. And the way we act, finally, is a matter of speaking. Speaking with grace and with salt. Looking for just the right word. Just that aspect of the gospel that this person needs right now in this moment. First church, you are the salt of the earth. But no grain of salt is ever going to be of any help to anyone by staying inside the salt shaker. As the title of a famous book on evangelism puts it, we need to move out of the salt shaker and into the world. Now we're trying to do that in Mexico City and we send you updates and prayer letters and we post our uh, prayer requests online each month and we send you emails. And you know what? Nothing would be more encouraging to Blanc and myself than to get an update from some of you telling us how you persevered in prayer, how you were watchful, how you redeemed the time And how you spoke with grace and salt. And then how God used that to redeem lives and build his church. We'd love to hear from you about that. So thank you again, First Church, for your prayers for our ministry. For your financial contributions to our ministry. For encouraging us in some ways with with, uh, communications as well. And now for your hospitality. Opening up your homes, opening up your pulpit, and uh, opening up your hearts. So we thank you for all of that, and we, our prayer is that God will bless this church in rich new ways, ways that maybe you haven't even seen before, as you obey him, as you call others to his light and his grace. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We believe in prayer. We believe in witnessing. But sometimes these things come so hard for us. Trying to get together a a prayer group at church can be difficult. Trying to get Christians together to go out and, and share in their neighborhood is difficult. Lord, help our unbelief. We know how much it matters. We know that you've called us to this. And yet it's so difficult for us to take that first step. We pray that you will draw us unto yourself so that we can rediscover the delight of spending time with you, of fellowship with you, communion with you in prayer. And then we pray that as we bubble up with joy, the joy of knowing you, that you will then send us back out into the world with a message that is gracious and salty, a message of the mystery of Christ. Lord, we pray that you will open doors, open hearts to your message, and open our mouths so that we will preach your word in its time. Help us to understand that the witnessing we do midweek is an extension of the preaching that is done from this pulpit. That it doesn't stay here 
that needs to get out there. Lord, we pray that the mystery of Christ might not be as mysterious anymore for those who haven't heard it. May we be able to explain it to them. We pray that the time that we have on this earth might be redeemed. And we pray that our neighbors might be redeemed by that. That you would use our efforts to share and to show love to those around us, to those who are different from us, to those who maybe have offended us in some way. Help us to be people of grace and forgiveness, just as you have given us so much grace and mercy and forgiveness yourself. Lord, we pray this all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our hymn of our